welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 6, A Perfect Savage, The Murder of Martha Tabram. I'm Jonathan Mangus, coming to you from Topeka, Kansas in the USA. Joining me today from Philadelphia is Howard Brown. Hi, Howard. Hi, John. Glad to be here, buddy. Glad to have you back as well. And we have in Hull in the UK, Mike Covell. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, guys. Hi, Mike. And with us from Edmonton in Canada is Robert McLaughlin. Hi, Robert. Hi, Jonathan. Glad to be back. Glad to have you back. Now, today's uh, subject is uh, the first of uh, what will be a series of uh, shows concentrating on each individual victim. And we'll give each victim um, their own show eventually down the line. And we're going to start from the beginning with Martha Tabram. Now, um, I'll start off with a little bit of biographical information for those of you who need to be refreshed. Uh, At the time of her death, Martha was age 39, and she was found dead in the early morning hours of August 7, 1888. Martha was the youngest of five children. She had two brothers and two sisters. Her parents separated when she was 16 years old, and her father died when she was 17. By the age of 20, she was living with Henry Samuel Tabram, and she soon married uh, Henry Tabram. They had two children, both boys. Martha's heavy drinking was said to have contributed to the couple's separation after only six years. But Henry Tabram continued to pay her a weekly allowance for four years after their separation, and they never illegally divorced. And uh, Martha then went to live with William Turner, but continued to drink heavily, and this caused a strain on their relationship as it had with her relationship with Henry Tavram. They lived together at Four Star Street in the East End, and when they separated, three weeks before her murder, Turner went to stay at the Victoria Working Man's home, and Martha Tabram went to stay at a common lodging house in Spitalfields at 19 George Street. Coincidentally, uh, a victim uh, six months earlier, Emma Elizabeth Smith, um, who died in April of 1888 after being set upon by a gang of four men, um, lived at 19 George Street in Spitalfields. And on the night of August 6th, the night before uh, her body was discovered, uh, uh, which was a bank holiday, Tabram is said to have gone out drinking with a friend named Marianne Connolly, also known as Pearly Paul. Um, but verifiably, she was seen going into the White Swan Public House, which is a drinking establishment, alone. Um, so uh, that is a little bit of background on Martha. And we're going to kind of break this up into sections, and and this uh, show um, will contain more opinion um, than some of our prior episodes that uh, that contained uh, kind of uh, that guests and and ourselves uh, tried to kind of stay a little bit out of the realm of speculation. But given that this is a controversial uh, uh, victim um, of uh, someone described as a perfect savage, whoever that man may have been, um, we'll just kind of um, have a little bit more of a conversation style thing. And to uh, discuss um, 
the events leading up to um, her death, um, in the hours before her death, we'll turn it over to Robert McLaughlin in Canada. Uh, sure. Uh, uh, the only verifiable source we have uh, for the movements of um, Martha Tabram on the night she was murdered uh, comes from her uh, drinking companion and fellow prostitute uh, Marianne Conley, also known as uh, Pearly Paul. Uh, they'd met at about uh, 10 o'clock that evening in a uh, pub in Brick Lane, uh, the Two Brewers pub, um, where they allegedly met a couple of uh, soldiers. And then they went to, to various drinking establishments and at 11 p.m. ended up at the White Swan Public House in uh, Whitechapel High Street, where, uh, where Ann Morris, who is sister-in-law to... Uh, Martha Tabram sees uh, Tabram outside of the White Swan, but does not see Marianne Conley, does not see the soldiers. Now, uh, quickly, Robert, um, you said, sorry to interrupt. Sure. You, you said um, that, uh, did Conley uh, claim that they were uh, at the White Swan around 11 p.m.? Yeah. And yeah, didn't, this. Didn't yeah. Um, her sister in law? claim to have seen Tabram alone at the White Swan, like, between 7 and 8 p.m.? She claims to have seen her outside the public house. Hours earlier than when Pearly Paul um, claimed to have been there with Tabram. Yeah. Okay. Okay, just just uh, get that straight. All right, go ahead. Um, and according to Marianne Conley, uh, at about 11.45, they part company, her and Tabram. Uh... Marianne Connolly takes her soldier boy up Angel Alley. And she said that uh, Tabram took her man up uh, George Yard. Uh, the streets are very close together. They run parallel, and they're only about 20 yards apart. And that's the last sighting we see of uh, uh, Tabram until she shows up murdered. Uh, but a few interesting things happen before she actually shows up dead on the landing in George Yard Buildings. Uh, at about uh, um, 2 o'clock uh, that evening, uh, the following day, uh, August 7th, uh, PC Barrett is patrolling in Wentworth Street, and he sees a soldier there. And he asked the soldier what he's doing, and the soldier said he's waiting for a chum uh, who went up the alley. Uh, he, he might have been referring to uh, uh, Tabram and, and, uh, and or uh, Connolly. It's difficult to say. Uh, perhaps not. Uh, as for the building she was found in, uh... Oh, sorry about that. I lost my train of thought for a sec. That's okay. Um, yeah, at, at, uh, at about uh, 10 to uh, 2 on August 7th, 10 to 2 in the morning, uh, Elizabeth Mahoney, uh, she returned home to her lodgings in uh, George Yard. Uh, she crossed over the first floor landing, but she didn't see anything. Um, about an hour and a half later, uh, George Crow, who also lives in George Yard uh, building, uh, at 3.30 in the morning, he returned home, and he notices what he thought was a homeless person on the first floor landing. Uh, 
he said this was quite a common occurrence, finding people in the stairwells uh, sleeping rough. Uh, so he thought nothing of it. Uh, it wasn't until an hour and 15 minutes later that John Saunders Reeves, uh, who left for work, uh, came down the stairs, and there was enough light at the time that he noticed on the first floor landing a woman lying there in a pool of blood. And then he fetched the policeman, P.C. Barrett, and they fetched Dr. Colleen from Brick Lane, and that was the discovery of Martha Tabram's murder. Now, um, she was found, um, like you said, uh, on the first floor landing, which, um, to us, to, uh, Ameri- to those in the, to us yeah, Americans to those in- would be the sec- what we would consider the, the leading up to the second floor of, right. of uh, George Yard buildings. And, and um, within feet of, of occupied um, um, residences. Uh, yeah, in fact, uh, the superintendent of uh, George Yard is a fellow named uh, Francis Hewitt. Uh, he's literally uh, slept 12 feet from uh, where Tabram was murdered. He heard nothing during the night, and uh, his wife claimed to have heard a cry of murder, uh, but it was hours and hours uh, before uh, Tabram was discovered, so it, it's doubtful it had anything to do with the crime. And and it's um, an echo... Uh, it, it somewhat reminds me of the, the case of Kitty Genovese, I believe her name was, who was a victim of a, of a murder in New York City in which um, hundred, hundreds of people were, were residing, you know, in the same block of her murder. Howard may know more about this case than I do, but dozens was uh, heard, heard uh, her screams and, and, and uh, no one reported it. Right. Anyway, um, so um, so based on Pearly Paul's um, coming forward, and Howard, maybe you can address this a little bit more. Um, we get the we get the timing of of, uh, of the last sighting of, of Martha yeah. Tabram, which is yeah, roughly well, around eleven forty five. Yeah, well, I have some ideas about this, guys. Um, after reviewing a lot of the Tabram-related information, I personally am of the opinion that this liaison between Paul and Tabram and the two soldiers didn't occur. And um, okay, I like to well, run... before you go get, get through that, let's um, uh-huh. either you or Robert or Mike uh, go through uh, what what happened in the days following. Um, the discovery of her body. Uh, we set it up uh, as far as uh, Pearly Paul's um, being, reviewing of the of the soldiers and everything like that. Well, how did Pearly Paul get involved in, in this murder investigation? Well, Robert, you want it or you want me to take it? That's uh, it's yours, Howard. Okay. Well, on the night on the seventh, uh, ostensibly Pearly Paul was first heard about the murder. That was the that was a Tuesday. Um, Mrs. Tabram had been killed Monday night. Uh, she went to the Commercial Street Police Station and um, had some communication with the officers there. And then she did a runner. For two, two days, she wasn't found. And then she, she had feigned, uh, she, had, she had said she was going to commit suicide in the interim. And then uh, Inspector Reed found her on the 12th. And on the 13th, they prepared a um, identification parade for her, and she couldn't identify anyone there. Then on the 15th, 
uh, she, she was brought to the Wellington Barracks to identify someone, which she did. Um, after that, and after the the inquest, uh, we don't hear too much more about her. And the summation of the inquest was that they really didn't believe in the testimony that she gave and that he was still looking for person or persons unknown regarding the murder. And that's what little we have on Pearly Paul at the moment. Robert? Yeah, there's very little about her. Uh, you know, other than, like, let's say her physical appearance, they said she was a, a very homely-looking, masculine woman uh, who was who a very heavy drinker. And she My was, kind of girl. <laughs> <laughs> and she was very, uh, very reluctant. As you said, she sort of hid away from the police and didn't want to be found. And, and uh, when she did bring her testimony forth, uh, it, it, it didn't seem to be that credible with the police. And, you know, we find this, of course, in, uh, you know, modern day uh, uh, murders of uh, uh, prostitutes and those less fortunate uh you know, I, I even sort of jokingly refer to it as the as the pearly Paul syndrome is is where you have somebody who is a witness, but you know they're reluctant to give you information, or they give you misinformation, or misleading information, or they don't remember things properly. But yeah. rather than helping the investigation, they impede the investigation, and I, I think that's what that's what happened in this case with yeah. with Marianne Connolly. She was she was more of an impediment to the police than a help, unfortunately. I agree. And now, Howard, what what, what are your points? Um, okay, that, that leaves you to doubt this. Okay, well, let's look at some facts, and I've got I got the the majority of the facts from Paul Beggs, the facts, and also Stuart Evans and Keith Skinner's The Ultimate Source Book. Um, here's a fact: the former sister-in-law of Tabram and Tabram Morris remembered Tabram standing in front, not inside the White Swan, at 11 p.m. on the 6th alone. There's, there is, however, a caveat to that because there's a discrepancy in the time. The Eastern Post on August 25, 1888, which, was 19, which came out 19 days later, reported that Morris claimed that she saw Tabham anywhere from 8, or nine, 8 to 9 o'clock. Here's another fact. Not only is Paul a little off in a time, she's an hour off on the hour she alleges they went bar hopping. Again, with not one person remembering this little gang of four appearing in their midst on that night, Paul claims they were together at 10 p.m. And it's true that Tabram may have been waiting outside for that rat pack to finish their drinks or pay the bar bill when Morris saw her alone. Another fact. Paul found out about the murder the very next day, not 24 hours later, maybe even half that amount of time. She did not go to the police station or contact the authorities about her friend's ill-fated evening until two days later at Commercial Street. Another fact, for three days after the initial statement to the authorities in Commercial Street, she is nowhere to be found until Inspector Edmund Reed finds her, sets up an identity parade on the 13th, and she doesn't recognize anyone from that evening. Two days later, on the 15th, she's led to the Wellington Barracks in the tower to, to engage in yet another identity parade. This time, she identifies a man with stripes on his hat. She is mistaken as the man in question has an alibi for that night and for the following morning as well. Okay, for someone who was with a soldier, not for two minutes in an alley, not for five minutes in a conversation, and not for only a half hour in a brothel or a bed, she was allegedly with the victim and the two soldiers for approximately an hour and 45 minutes, and she misidentifies this man when squarely face-to-face -face with him. 
She mentions an important event on the night in question when she recants the quarrel that occurred during that evening. In Paul Begg's facts, the exact source is unclear for the moment. She claims that Tabram was not involved in this dispute. This dispute either occurred between the two soldiers themselves, one with Paul, or both with Paul. She mentioned the stripes on the soldiers' caps, but botches the identification of the man when face-to-face. If she had been out with this trio, as she claimed, for at least an hour and 45 minutes, then how could she misidentify him by his face? She certainly had to look at him for more than a quick glance. Um, I I really think that this... um, this whole Pearly Paul scenario could serve as an encouragement for those who have always assumed that there were two guards with Tabram and Paul for the future. It might also encourage people to look at Tabram more closely as a Ripper victim, not by virtue of specific and tangible evidence, of course, but that Tabram most likely was killed by someone other than these two guards that invariably get mentioned in the midst of any Tabram discussion. Two guards who probably did not exist except in the mind of Pearly Paul. And that's my position on it. So, and, uh, uh, go ahead, Robert. Yeah, and, and one thing that I've found interesting, too, uh, in, in regards to the time that, that, uh, that you've quoted, Howard, and that we all know that, uh, according to Pearly Paul, her and Martha Tabram were together from 10 p.m. until 11.45 when they parted ways. That's an hour and 45. Right. Yet, according to Marianne Connolly, they were at least in three different pubs. Now, I've been pub hopping a, a bit in my times and I don't know I've never been w- out with other people you know for some drinking visiting three or four pubs and s- and separating only an hour and 45 minutes later you know the time just seems off on that right and so I've your, had my- your theory Howard it, um, uh, just to make it clear to everyone is that is that uh, it's it, it's possible that uh, that Mary Connolly got uh, alone got into a dispute with a guard that evening, and she used the Martha Tavern murder to excise some kind of vendetta. Um, That's possible, yeah. she was unable to, uh, uh, or she vaguely recalled what kind of uniform this guard or guards were wearing. Right. And she went through this charade um, um, just as a, as a type of revenge in the hopes that she could find the guard that she had this uh, dispute with. And it, it just had nothing to, at all to do okay. with uh, the murder of Martha Tavern. John, on top of that, I neglected to mention this. This is the most important fact. It has nothing to do with me and my theory or anything that I'm presenting, but it has something to do with Inspector Edmund Reed, who was in charge of that, and said, on September 24th, Seven weeks after the August 6th murder, Inspector Edmund Reed wrote a report in which he stated at the end of the report that inquiries were made in an effort to find anyone who could verify the presence of Tabram, Paul, and these two soldiers at any of the more than one, and undoubtedly the White Swan, as well as the other tap rooms Connolly alleges they frequented, but without success. That's seven weeks of investigation without a single person remembering that code array on that night anywhere. So to me, that that just says it, it simply didn't happen. But again, you know, it's just a theory. Well, and another thing too that I've all often wondered about is, uh, you know, uh, people often talk about George Hutchinson coming forward with his story. Uh, you know, seeing a man in the company of Mary Ann Kelly, uh, pardon me, Mary Jane Kelly, uh, on the night she was murdered, but he comes forward a few days later, and of course, people have, have questioned his story. Uh, Connolly, a lot of people have, have yet to question her story. Um, you know, it could be possible 
that she came forward with the story of the soldiers simply because uh, by that time it was known that P.C. Barrett had talked to a soldier in Wentworth Street. Exactly. exactly. And, she could, and she could have just ran with the story then because P.C. Barrett, of course, was taken on an ID parade as well. Um, now, of course, uh, he couldn't find anybody. Uh, he picked out uh, one guy who had medals, one guy who didn't have medals. Uh, uh, the guy uh, who he picked out eventually had a Brixton alibi. And uh, so, you know, his, his testimony couldn't be used. But you can understand, because Barnetta, I mean, Barrett, uh, P.C. Barrett only talked to the soldier at, uh, at uh, Wentworth Street for, you know, maybe a minute or less. Right. And right. there was also another idea, I think, that should be mentioned as well, uh, that involved a soldier, is uh, a lady by the name of Jane Gilbin and her daughter. Uh, now, Gilbin was a, a friend or an acquaintance of uh, Martha Tabram, and she said she saw Tabram with a soldier on the Sunday before her murder. And she was also led to the tower to look at the Scots guards, uh, but her and her daughter, uh, they, they couldn't pick anybody who they saw. Uh, Tabram with uh, so it's it's possible that that uh, Tabram frequented soldiers, but it's likely also that that uh, her and Conley that evening weren't with any soldiers. Well, right. but also at the same token, Robert, um, w- couldn't uh, PC Barrett's um, um, sighting uh, be used to bolster Pearly Paul's um, right. account because? Um, if you're if you're suggesting that her uh, memory was jarred, uh, or or she made a connection once after reading about uh, the sighting of the soldier, um, uh, you know, I mean, Tavern's body wasn't discovered until hours later. Um, wouldn't you know? Isn't that equally plausible that that, that Mary that, no, Con- that that, Connolly? Go ahead. That is equally plausible, absolutely. You know, I'll, I'll I'll give you that. Like I was just playing devil's advocate on the one point, uh, but no, it's it's equally plausible that uh, it did jar her memory, and, and they were out with soldiers. Yeah. But it's it's just that uh, you have to look at her testimony though as problematic. You know, much like we let's say look at Hutchinson's testimony as problematic, or or even other witnesses like Schwartz or Mrs. Long or even Lavender. You know, like. We have to we have to look at uh, some of these uh, witnesses uh, a little bit more closely. We we right. can't just take what they have said on faith. Right. Sometimes we 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 kind of add our wishes to it. We wish that they were right. It's in, invariable in, in an investigation or a case like this, with so many uh, bits of tangible evidence that you you really want things to be the way you want them. And, and with the and it's the only jumping off point we have, right? Right, exactly, yeah, exactly. And Mike, um, what's your opinion on, on uh, Marianne Connolly and Martha Tabram that evening? Well, just to sort of uh, go on what Robert um, said, um, Detective Inspector Edmund Reed um, was there to supervise the first lineup, which took place on the, the 7th of August. So it was later on in the day after the body was found, which is, you know, it's pretty fast police work. Um, that was the one at the Tower of London, where they had Grenadier guards, um, and they were brought before PC Barrett in the guard room. Um, he failed to recognise any of the men. And then the day after was the second parade on the, the 8th of August, where, again, uh, Inspector Reed and PC Barrett returned back to the Tower um, and those guards who had been on, on leave the night before were brought in for a lineup, up um, and that was the occasion where we picked out two men and 
that was on the the eighth, and it wasn't until the the ninth um, when Pearly Paul uh, went to the police station uh, on Commercial Street. Um, you know, is it possible she read it in the news uh, in the newspaper or heard about it from someone? Um, you know, and she's basically, you know, like you said, using it to have some sort of personal vendetta um, against against a soldier um, who's maybe wronged her um, in some way. Um, right, and on the know, night of the six, and we know nothing um, about Marianne Connolly. Um, we'll say that before I say this is that her um, her suicide or her threats of suicide um, while she was um, in hiding or you know refusing to come forward or whatever you want to call it um, does bring her her. Uh, her account more into question. Don't you guys agree? Yeah, she wasn't wrapped right. She, she, you know, she may have realized that what she did was wrong in the first place by going on the ninth, uh, or you know, on the ninth to Commercial Street, and then um, by the time Reed found her, she had gone through a lot of uh, inner ag- agony about uh, lying in the first place. That's possible too. Right. Yeah, I find her reaction rather melodramatic. Yeah, a little over the top. Right. Um, yeah, and, and I'll play devil's advocate this time um, and just say that um, we don't know how well Mary Connolly knew Martha Tabram. Um, they were good friend, or they, they were apparently drinking companions for four or five months before Martha's death. So um, who knows? Uh, you know, we can't say what was going on in Mary Ann Connolly's mind. Did she, you know... Um, yeah. She could have blamed herself for for being uh, unable to prevent the murder. She could, you know, have wished, you know, maybe she was responsible for hooking them up with the soldiers to be, you know, right. There's no and way. There's no way of knowing what what really um, was going on with her. And and, other- like, and and the reports we have is that like Tabram, she was a heavy drinker, and uh, you know her memories could be clouded. Her judgment could be clouded. Yeah, you know a person can get a lot of uh, notoriety and free drinks out of their fifteen minutes of fame, and uh, somebody coming up with a story like that, you know, will immediately become some sort of celebrity within their own, you know, enclave or circle of friends. So, you know, that possibility exists. Okay, so sort of the sort of like Matthew Packer. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Let's move on um, to. Um to the murder itself, and um, and what was done to Martha Tabram. Um, How Howard, do you want to take that part? I sure will. I sure will. Um, well, when Doctor Killeen did the the inquest, or well, not the inquest, but the description of the wounds, uh, we have. He said that there were thirty nine wounds. Two of them, he was two instruments. He felt were at play here, and uh, I think it's the consensus among us that the the fatal wound was the last wound, the one to the heart. We have five wounds to the left lung, two to the right lung, five to the liver, six to the stomach, two to the spleen, one to the aforementioned heart, and eighteen other wounds which were in the vaginal area and other parts of her torso. Uh, a couple of years ago, I did an experiment with a piece of polyurethane foam, which I'm 
sure is not equivalent to a human being in, in density, but it's pretty close to it. And as an experiment, um, I personally stabbed the piece of foam 39 times. And I can tell you right now that it takes upward of 30 seconds to commit a murder like that uh, in an area of confinement on that landing. So this is an extreme case of overkill, in my opinion. And for no one to hear that, no one to hear the 39 stabs, um, the people that lived in that apartment, like Robert said, 12, 12 feet away, you know, four yards away, and them not to hear it, um, they're either very sound sleepers or the, the murder was committed with some, some degree of stealth. That's just my opinion on it. I don't know what you guys think about that. Or, or as the point you've, you've brought up before, Howard, is that... Uh uh, that the actual stabbing motion and and maybe even groans from Tabram, if there were any, could have been mistaken for coitus. Exactly. And 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 then just simply ignored. Right. Yeah. Now, when you, when you say um, uh, back to the the thirty nine wounds, when you, when you say um, that the report mentioned that the final wound was the stab to the heart. No, the final, the, the final, the final wound, um, the, the final wound, evidently had to be the heart. According according to Colleen, the heart, which was rather fatty, was penetrated in one place, and that would be sufficient to cause death. And the most likely scenario is that the killer, or killers, stabbed her thirty eight times with a shorter, um, a shorter blade, and then the coup de gras was committed to the heart. Right, and and um, he bases, and we we don't know what he bases that that um, exactly that, that exactly that the the wound to the heart was was necessarily the yeah. the fatal blow that came the the thirty ninth uh, yeah exactly well, as Robert Robert mentioned that before that we don't have a post mortem report so we're we're doing the best we can here with what we have and and when you look at like the wounds that are listed like. Uh, Colleen says that it could be done with something, you, you know, as simple as an ordinary pen knife, which means something with a very short blade. And, uh, you know, when we look at the wounds, like, uh, to her stomach and to her genital areas and the liver, spleen, left lung, right lung, in and by themselves, uh, you know, Colleen doesn't consider these probably fatal. Uh, but, but it's the larger weapon that he assumes is a dagger or a bayonet or something like that, uh, that uh, that pierces the heart, and and that's the fatal one. Whether it comes first or last, but that's that's a fatal uh, shot. The the other ones uh, really aren't fatal wounds. They're you will eventually die from them, but not immediately if you're only stuck like with a two or three inch blade. Right. Uh, but is, it, correct it, me if I'm wrong. Isn't the popular conception of the of this is is that uh, the the smaller wounds were made first? And then, and then the, and then the murderer uh, switched to the dagger to make the fatal heart wound at the end yeah. of the attack. Yeah, yeah that would make. Go ahead, Howard. Go ahead. Uh, no, it's okay, Robert. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, that's that's the popular conception, and and there's also been a theory posited, uh, you know, in modern times by a few people uh, that uh, only one knife was used. Uh, that. Uh, that the last shot uh, 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 pierced her sternum, her 
her chest plate. And uh, uh, the reason this is posited as being the same knife is that if you stick a little knife in something like a block of wood or even as Howard tried out some styrofoam and then try to pull it out, you'll have a tendency to wedge it back and forth and make it look like a larger weapon. I only thought I'd bring that up just because some people have, have brought that point out, but I don't yeah. necessarily buy it, simply because uh, in 1888, uh, doctors at that time were well-versed in knife wounds. They'd seen them with uh, accidents at work, uh, with assaults, uh, with murders. Knives were quite commonplace, and it, it, forensically speaking, they really understood knife wounds. So that's something I would actually trust with Colleen's testimony. Yeah. Now, were yeah. they advanced enough to uh, tell um, that that this uh, wound to the heart was uh, uh, after uh, smaller wounds? Like, could they like could they could they judge overlapping wounds uh, or, or something like that to where uh, the, uh, an opinion that this was um, a, a final blow um, could be valid? Um, they could probably get that wrong. Uh, but but as for I think the, like the nature of the weapon and like the depth of the blade used and, and certain things like that I think that is correct and even the fact that there are two weapons I'm I'm willing to accept that okay. because because also when you think about it like Howard Brown you mentioned the overkill part and uh, uh, when you look at it, it it makes a lot of sense that if if you're punching away at this woman who's not dying and you're hitting her and hitting her and hitting her with this short little blade and she's not dying and you're worried any minute that you may be caught that people could come out in the staircase and hear you doing what you're doing and maybe you pull out a bigger weapon and and that was the fatal blow right uh, at least that's the way i perceive it you know that's the opinion that i take it, it may be wrong but Right. Um, well, and let's discuss the the uh, the opposite possibility, um, and and I'll let Howard do that. And, and that and that is that um, that the the wound to the heart was the initial attack, followed well, by uh, the uh, rapid stabbing uh, thirty eight times uh, on on her body. Well, yeah, yeah that, that's entirely possible that um, Killeen says, and I quote again, he says that the heart was penetrated in one place and that would be sufficient to cause death, but he does not say that it definitely caused death. And if it inca incapacitated her, that would mean that this killer, after you know stabbing her in the heart, which was sufficient enough, or in the heart area, then takes out another knife. And then stabs her 38 more times within a 30-second 30, 30 period. To me, that sounds like a frenzy. And in a frenzy, you make noise. And in this case, we have you know either no noise at all or no appreciable noise to rouse the neighbors. So you have to you have to wonder: um, it, is this is just a, a a case of someone being jilted in a sexual liaison and then retaliating, or is this something entirely different? Is this some maniacal attack on a sleeping woman. Um, there's no guarantee that she wasn't sleeping there in, it, in the landing. Um, she may have been so pie-eyed or drunk that she had no place to stay and figured that she would get out of the elements and go sleep on that, that landing. So, um, you know, it's anybody's call to me. No. And 
Go ahead, and that's, that's an interesting point, Howard, that, uh, that she could have been sleeping on the landing. Uh, she might have been out drinking that night. We uh, know she was seen outside uh, uh, the White Hart Pub. And, uh, yep, she could have passed out on the George Yard landing. And, and when George Crow uh, uh, passed her at 3.30 in the morning, maybe she wasn't yet dead. Yeah, and she also yeah. was uh, rumored to have suffered um, s- seizures. Um, Rum fetch. Uh, yeah, uh, um, after uh, drinking heavily. Um, now, Mike uh, wants to get in on this um, being asleep, and I also want to know your opinion, Mike, about um, about whether you, you know is it is it is it a fifty fifty kind of thing, or is it whether I mean I I find um, um, uh, there is some importance uh, attached to whether the the wound the dagger wound to the heart was the first or the last, um, and and I'll we'll get. To, we'll flesh it out as we go along, but go ahead, Mike. Well, first and foremost, with regards to being asleep on the landing, I think that's quite a plausible theory. Um, quoting from uh, the facts by Paul Beck, it did say that the bank holiday Monday, the weather was dark. Sorry, the weather was poor, gloomy, grey skies with a threat of rain. So to me, that would sound like, you know, if you've had too much to drink, um, you was a bit worse for wear, would be an ideal place to sleep. Then we have Alfred George Crow coming out at 3.30 in the morning. And he sort of said that he thought it was a homeless person. Um, And like Robert said, it's a possibility that she wasn't dead at that time. Um, And then the next person to come across the the landing was at 4.50. Uh, which was John Saunders Reeves, uh, who found the body. So you've got sort of that time frame there, um, you know, where it's possible that she was killed. Um, in terms of the the knife roll, I'd have to say, um, I'd, I'd think going for the heart first, um, in all honesty. Um, when you look at the way hunters and stuff like that go for the prey, um, they always try and go for the kill shot first, um, you know, and then do what they need to do afterwards. Um, it, it's, you know, for me, it would stop her screaming, it would stop her struggling, um, it would stop her making noise if you was to kill her first. If you was to stab frantically um, before you, you give the kill shot, there's a risk that she's going to scream. Um, right. You know, the, the, the kind of wounds you've got, um, with the exception of the lungs, You'd, you'd still be able to give pretty much a, a scream or a shout or make some kind of noise. Uh, it's when you're talking of the sort of lungs, when you when there's a puncture wound to the lungs and the lungs filling up with blood and, and whatnot. Um, you know, that's the only thing that's going to stop her from screaming, really. Um, so I tend to go with the, the, the conclusion that the, the killer blow uh, was the blow to the heart and that was the first, the first uh, wound that was struck to her. Okay, now... And, uh, and can I ask all of you guys quickly, though... Uh, Jonathan, before you move on to your point, is that um, uh, in the absence of a, a true post-mortem report, which we don't have, all we have from really uh, Dr. Colleen is what is reported in uh, the newspapers and the scant information uh, from the reports submitted by Reed in the official files. Um, but if, let's say, for instance, that Tabram was asphyxiated or partially asphyxiated, uh, like That's some of the other, get at, um, other well. Ripper victims, sure. Uh, you know, how does that affect, uh, you know, how we look at the knife wounds? But anyway, continue, Jonathan, with your point. 
No, that, that's exactly what I was going to bring up, is the possibility um, that, like the other Ripper victims, um, she was throttled initially. Um, and there is also, although it's uh, not present in Colleen's, and uh, how it was reported in the Times, Colleen's um, inquest testimony, or the inquiry, um, that she had a uh, any wounds at all to her neck of those 18 unaccounted for wounds. Swanson does mention uh, a wound to the neck. Um, so, you know, I want Robert, to, you to address um, the points of what leads what leads you to maybe believe, uh, or the the it's you know we're here, it's hard to. Uh, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to pigeonhole anyone into any kind of theories here. Um, so, um, but you know, what I mean, um, what 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 evidence do you see that could point to her being strangled initially and then attacked after she was subdued that way? Well, it, it's just that she was found in a similar manner to other Ripper victims. Uh, she was found on her back. Um, you know, her her legs were apart. Uh, her clothing was up. Uh, around her waist, uh, exposing the lower part of her body. Uh, her hands were clenched. Um, and, and also, if, if, if you look at the, the mortuary photo, uh, uh, it, it seems like her tongue is protruding a bit and that she, her face is a bit swollen, as if she may have been throttled or partially asphyxiated. Now, I'm not saying she was. I'm, I'm just saying that uh, in the absence of a post-mortem, that, that there is that possibility uh, that she could have been quickly uh, subdued that way to prevent right. a lot of the noise from a knife attack. Right, Robert, you know what that means, of course. It adds about 15 seconds to the total time elapsed of the, the beginning of the murder to the end. So we're talking anywhere from 45 seconds to a minute that this guy or the killer or killers is in the landing uh, taking care of Tabram. And, 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 that's, and that's probably a minimum, Howard, right? Yeah, that's yeah, that's 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 the uh, that's the minimum because it takes at least thirty seconds to um, to stab one to someone thirty nine times because after the thirty eighth stab wound, let's assume that the knife wound was the last one, just to play devil's advocate. Let's just say that the the knife to the heart was the last one. The first thirty eight, then he's got to stop and then get his larger blade and then perform the coup de grace. So there's a little bit of time taken there. So we're talking 45 seconds at, at, at a minimum in that landing with no sound, appreciable sound. Um, like right now. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we're just pondering. Um, okay, let's address um, Swanson's claim of, of there being a neck wound. What, what, what does everybody think about that? Here's something that I don't know if it... I haven't been able to find it if it appears anywhere else um, and in any other um, expert's opinion. Um, but um, we do have one of the 18 wounds um, from Swanson's pen being a neck wound. Um, there, there are several cuts and wounds um, which uh, I think are attributed in, in uh, Colleen's um, testimony uh, centering uh solely on the private parts of Martha. Um, and, and here Swanson has a wound to the neck. It's not evident in the photographs, but the neck wounds aren't really evident in any of the photographs. It's not mentioned in, in the press. It's, not, it, it's, one, it's, and it's also one of, 
the properly held beliefs for those who try to um, discount Martha as a victim of Jack the Ripper and that um, it deviates from his M.O., that there was no, uh, there was no throat cutting involved. So, so let's get some opinions on that. Let's start with Mike for this one. Well, uh, basically what we're going on um, in terms of the inquest, uh, the newspaper reports at the time, is it possible um, that something such as that was held back from the newspapers um, and they weren't given the full story? Um, I mean, uh, at the minute, I'm just reading the, the Tuesday, uh, sorry, the, the Times on Friday the 10th of August, um, which carried details um, of the... the um, Right, in which in which uh, the, the inquest, um, you know, which it gives it gives various statements, um, and then after that we have another inquest, which takes place a little bit later. Um, that was on August twenty third, wasn't it, Mike? I believe so. Yep, that's right, and it appeared in the Times on the fourth of the twenty fourth. Um, but again, you know, there's nothing on there to say that she received any neck wounds. And I was just wondering if maybe that was something that, that had been kept back from the press. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, that, without any official documentation of a, a post-mortem or, you know, a proper coroner report, um, it's, it's difficult to go on, really. And again, looking at the autopsy photo, the, the way her face is kind of scrunched down into a chest, you know, the, the, the neck is, you know, you can't even see it. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, she, uh, Mar- Mar- Martha Tabram had a very prominent double chin, and her jowls sort of hung down over her neck uh, right. in the mortuary photo. So, so she could easily have a, a neck wound. Yeah, and uh, okay, so uh, and, because it was uh, since it was uh, not mentioned in the press, but it was mentioned um, by a Swanson. Um, would we therefore lend more credence to going on Mike's? Uh, completely plausible theory that it was withheld could we yeah. go, could we uh, therefore say that Swanson's account of, of a neck wound is the more reliable of the two hmm. uh, I don't know if more reliable is the word but um, it's it's definitely very plausible simply because uh, we only have 21 of the 39 wounds completely accounted for uh, you know uh, Colleen says there were five wounds to the left lung two wounds to the right lung one wound to the heart, five wounds to the liver, two wounds to the spleen, six wounds to the stomach. That adds right. up to 21. There was also several wounds, uh, you know, to the abdominal and vaginal area. And uh, there could easily have been a, a, a neck wound and maybe overlooked simply because it was superficial. That it didn't uh, hit a, an artery, didn't hit a vein, didn't hit the windpipe, and uh, it, it just got overlooked Right. Except, except by Swanson. Right. Just a, just an addition here to what Mike was referring to before. Walter Dew confirmed that the police kept the press at arm's length and thought that this policy, the policy of those in high places, was a mistake because it flouted a great potential ally and indeed might have turned that ally into an enemy. So, yeah, it's true. That the, police, the police probably did keep uh, some of the information and facts back from the public at that point. Well, and, and I think yeah, it's a good point you raise, Howard, because if, if you go back to Emma Elizabeth Smith, 
there's there's almost uh, no reporting to the press at the time of, of her murder of anything of anything she said of corroboration mm-hmm. of, of of her attack and we see it we see a very closed uh, uh, police uh, unit then and, and I think it was only with uh, with each subsequent uh, uh, Whitechapel victim that we see the that the police are forced to discuss the the case with the press. Right, Emma Elizabeth Smith. For those who need to be reminded, was uh, uh, was the woman who was assaulted on Osborne Street um, by four men back in April of 1888, and she had a some kind of a pole-like object inserted into her. Um, it was used to rape her, and um, she died the next day, uh, the day following this attack. Um, back to um, this um, several cuts to her uh, uh, private region. Um, maybe Robert could shed a little light on this, uh, but um, there's various descriptions used to uh, for these uh, for for these attacks, cuts. Wounds, stabs. I mean, what are, what are we supposed to envision? Um, you know, uh, the the you you have these uh, poking stabs. That I mean, everyone assumes the thirty eight stab wounds were stabs, but then when you have hear them described as, as cuts and wounds, I mean, what 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 are what what are we supposed to draw from that that? Um, because this is an attack that could very well closely resemble um, the attack that occurred um, three weeks later on Marianne Nichols in Bucks Row. Well, he had a lot more space uh, to work with, uh, with the Nichols murder, the Chapman murder, and the Eddowes murder. And one thing I forgot to mention before, I'll just say it and, and let someone else speak. Um, of those 38 wounds to the to the body, it is entirely possible that there were more wounds because often um, it, it could have happened where he, uh, the the killer or killers stabbed into the same wound. Right. That's entirely possible, and just exp- and expanded on that wound. I'm, it could be f- forty-five wounds. We don't know, which would increase the time, um, the amount of time that he spent on the landing. And and also uh, just to bring out like. Uh, whether there was neck wound, lack of neck wound, you know, does it relate to to the later murders that that all contain neck wounds? Well, uh, if it, if it were the Ripper as we know him, and he he had a penknife on him that he used first, you must admit that's a very impractical weapon for slashing a throat. You know, uh, it's it's much more of a good puncture weapon. Right. And um, going off of that, um, when when you uh, when you say if you go with the idea that the dagger to the heart was the initial um, uh, attack uh, with a knife, that that would vary from um, the later victims, in which uh, it's it's generally accepted that the attack to the throat was the initial attack. So uh, he would have not, if he was the Ripper in the tavern case, he would have not only altered his weapon of choice, but he would have altered uh, the the region of the body that he struck first. Um, True. And he would, and and learning to just to further that thought, learning from the tavern murder, 
would give him good reason to uh, to um, change the knife that he used and to change the um, the method of, of the initial attack because shoving a dagger through someone's chest bone is not an easy thing to do. Um, it's much easier, uh, I don't know this from personal experience, but I would imagine it'd be much easier to slit someone's throat than to shove a dagger through their chest bone into their heart. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and another thing that should uh, be worth mentioning is that if one looks at other serial killers, one sees a variance of, of attacks and sometimes weapons. And, uh, you, you know, I, I think it's, it's oftentimes a little unwise, maybe even foolish, to just think that the Ripper slashed throats and didn't do anything else. Uh, because uh, victimology of, of other serial killers tells us that they can be a wide variance of attacks. Uh, you know, people can use knives and hammers and fists and, and, and get the same result. Right. right. Now, now, Mike, what did you want to say about um, the, the environment of George Yard? Uh, yeah, the the murder site itself and how, how it differed from uh, the Canonical Five's murder sites. The reason why I think we've got a frenzy as opposed to a slash throat and a, a ripped abdomen is four of the C5s were outside with varying degrees of lighting. Um, street lights um, Mary Kelly was indoors but it was said that at the time there was the fire um, that would have given some light to the room now Martha's murder inside George Yard would have had little or no light whatsoever um, and this is why I think we've got uh, such a frenzy as opposed to a more methodical approach that occurred in the later murders um, anyone have um, anything to say to that? Um, was it, uh, it probably wasn't total darkness um, on the first floor landing at George Yard, but would everyone agree that it was uh, pretty dark? Yeah, it was pretty dark. Even the daytime, oh. even the daytime photographs of the entryway into the building, it, it just goes into total blackness. Yeah, Mike brings up a good point with that. Like, uh, the Ripper could work in, in low light and darkness, as we know. And uh, if Tavern, let's say, was a Ripper victim. And, uh, you know, also he wasn't uh, weary of working very close to densely populated areas or people sleeping next door, as evidenced by the Annie Chapman murder or Nichols or, or Eddowes. I mean, you know, he, 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 like the Ripper was very comfortable working literally next door to people sleeping. If this is, in fact, the Ripper victim. Right. But a point that I'd like to raise also is that, um, you know, lately, of course, a lot of people have tried to parallel uh, the Tabram murder with, with later Canonical Five, but, uh, but one thing that's really interesting is actually you can parallel her attack. Um, it's, it's similar to one that happened in uh, February of that year to a woman who actually lived and that was Annie Millwood like Annie Millwood was a 38 year old prostitute she lived at uh, 8 Whites Row which is one block south and parallel to Dorset Street where Mary, uh, where Mary Kelly was murdered so right in the heart of Spitalfield she was attacked on February 25th uh, and she was stabbed in uh, the legs the lower torso all with a knife and she went to the White Chapel Infirmary 
Well, she stayed for a while because she was treated for wounds. She was uh, treated for several weeks before she was released. Um, she said it was a stranger. She didn't know who it was. Uh, robbery or rape wasn't the motive. And uh, she made a complete recovery. And eventually, uh, she died about a month later of unrelated uh, symptoms. But I think that attack is, is very similar to the Tabram attack. Right. Now, I w- I'd like to get your guys' opinion on this. What, what makes the Tabram um, murder, whether or not it, she should be included in the tally of Ripper victims, so important um, to, to Ripperologists? Um, what, and, and in that, what, you know, are, there, are there certain specific suspects that you, you could bring up that would be excluded? I mean, is it just suspect-based ripperology that has this vested interest in whether or not we need to stick to the canonical five? Or, or you know, what, what's the rele- why is it so important whether or not Tabram was the initial victim? What are your guys' thoughts on that? Well, I for one think that it um, it, it keeps to, it keeps all options available. Uh, it doesn't narrow or pigeonhole um, ripperology into one specific uh, mindset. I believe that by keeping Tabram's um, cul- um, Tabram's candidacy uh, open, that it simply expands the field. And um, there were some pretty uh, important people that felt that Tabram was a ripper victim as well. Do Reed, Aberline, and Anderson. And they all had different opinions about other things, but they all seemed to be in union about this uh, particular murder. And in, and, particular, and in particular, Inspector Reed, because Inspector Reed was on the spot. He, he was the one in charge of it from the beginning to the end. And I believe that for, for 49 days, um, he, he looked for any possible sighting in the Connolly incident that I talked about before. So I, I, I would take his word that, um, that the Tabern murder should be considered a, a, ripper, um, a possibly a, a, a ripper victim. Robert, you were going to say something? Yeah, I was going to say that, uh, um, you know, e- even though all these men that, uh, that Howard brings up, all these uh, policemen, uh, you know, some of their memoirs are flawed and later writings are flawed, but, you know, given the time, uh, they knew more about these crimes than we will ever know. I mean, they were there when it happened. And so that has to be given a lot of weight. And so... Taking Tabram as a as a potential victim, and they look at her as a victim, we must also uh, be prepared to accept that possibility, because if we don't, uh, then there is, you know, we get pigeonholed, and instead of looking at victimology, we're you know we're looking at suspects, because I don't want to know where suspects are just for the canonical five or the McNaughton five. I want to know where suspects were for uh, all of the unsolved murders and attacks. You know, if 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 we can hunt down that information, because um, I, I know you guys had Andy Spalick on two weeks ago when I wasn't here, and I, w- I would have uh, been very interested to know where Drew it was on the night Tabram uh, was murdered. Well, Andy, you know, just just as just as one one example. That's right. That's right. No one asked him that. You're right. Well, Robert. no, but um, Andy did bring up in the show that uh, Tabram was uh, the most problematic of the possible Ripper victims. Uh, for Drew's candidacy, um, I I don't know if you mentioned exactly why. It probably had something to do with Drew's cricketing schedule, um, but um, I know that Andy Spalick um, 
I'll let Andy speak for himself, on, I guess, on whether he, he considers Havram a, a, a ripper victim or not. But I, I do believe that, that um, Druitt um, did have s some sort of slight conflict in timing on that one. Um, but Mike, what... Uh, well, oh, okay, one thing I was going to also add to that is there, with Tumblety, um, uh research into Hughes Hallett, um, running, rushing down to the scene... Um, Get, you know, he gives uh, interviews uh, to reporters. Uh, he he considered this a ripper attack, um, and he and he was down at George Yard. Um, uh, you know, within I don't know hours of I, the body had been removed already, but he was there trying to conduct his own investigation, and um, and so right and, and so um, so Tabram's murder um, has been used. Um, to, I mean, in, in the case of Druitt, it may be used to exclude victims. Uh, I mean, I mean, in, uh, from in case in the case of Druitt, uh, Tabram's uh, murder could be used to exclude suspects. But in the case of Tumblety, it's being used um, to bolster suspects as well. So, so it's, it's kind of like um, she's kind of like the, uh, you know, the the secret weapon almost, you know for lack of a better term, in, in suspectology. Well, um, she's, she's used, like, a lot of things are used in the case where, you know, she can be used for someone's own purpose. Right. All right. Now, Mike, uh, what, what is your opinion on this? On, on how ta um, Tavram's murder, uh, why is it so important to, to ripperology? Well, I think, first of all, the, the, the way it occurred on a weekend stroke, bank holiday, um, falls in with all the attacks that followed, um, all of which occurred on weekends, or, you know, that for me sort of fits the pattern that was to come later. The severity of the attack, um, you know, stabbed that many times, as, as Howard said, it was overkill. Um, the, the weapon used, um, you know, we've seen earlier on that, you know, some of the girls in Whitechapel were attacked with metal bars, um, you know, this was a another knife, um, you know, another stabbing. Um, the location, I mean, obviously it's in, you know, smack, smack bang in the middle of Whitechapel. Um, so that's another thing that it's got going for it. Um, and the type of the type of social class that this woman was as well kind of fits the the other social classes that all the other women, um, the C5 fell into. Um, in terms of suspects, I was trying to find out where Sadler was. Um, as he was quite fond of the old pen knife, um, but I think he was at sea um, during that moment in time. Um, we know Stevenson. Um, we know where he was um, during that period of time. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, this, uh, yeah. Um, so you know, it's just working through. But I mean, even so. She, for me, is one of the most interesting victims. Um, yeah, and, and, and just to follow up on that, Mike, uh, you know, you hit on a good point that, that knife murder was relatively rare. Uh, I mean, statistics uh, point that out in, in the Spitalfields Whitechapel area. I mean, rape, assault, robbery, all these crimes are very common. But, but murder with a knife uh, that isn't a domestic is, was very rare. That, it's, that in itself 
you know, makes Tabram uh, something to look at. Right. John, we're there, buddy. All right. Um, I just want to have. I, I just want to bring up one more thing. Um, and Dan Order in um, uh, an article in the latest Ripper Notes talks about the idea that um, Mary Kelly was a copycat murder um, of, of the other Ripper murders, and it, it let, got me to thinking that if Martha Tavram um, was murdered by uh, a guardsman. Um, uh, and is not associated with um, um, uh, the murder is not the same murder as the one who killed um, Mary Nichols three weeks later. What what are, what are your guys' opinion on the possibility that um, the murder of Mary Nichols could have been inspired by the murder of Martha Tabham? Uh Personally, I don't think murders are inspired by other murders. Um... You know, you're either a murderer or you're not. And, uh, you know, whether or not the, the same man who murdered uh, Tabram murdered Nichols, uh, I don't think it would have uh, uh, would have propelled him. Like, if he murdered Tabram, he would have murdered anyway. If he didn't murder Tabram, same thing. Applies. Right. And so you're of the opinion uh, that Mary Kelly, is, the murderer of Mary Kelly had had. had probably killed previously. Uh, I'm personally of the opinion that, that she is a Ripper victim. Uh, you know, I know Alex Chisholm was the first one to uh, bring it up uh, that uh, she might be excluded, you know, once again, because it's different. She's younger, she's indoors, but, um, you know, uh, until some good evidence uh, comes forward, uh, yeah. I have to include her. I can't yeah. exclude her. Right, and it is interesting on how in how Tabram um, can be easily uh, assumed to be a one-off, almost. I mean, you know, um, um, some, so, uh, whether it was a, a, a John uh, prostitute uh, deal gone bad, which has been talked about in the past, and maybe she she uh, ripped him off, or you know, I mean, that this that the frenzy of the attack, you know, it was something that. Um, to, to disassociate Tabram's um, murder with the canonical five is to assume that the murder of Ta- the murderer of Tabram didn't go on to kill again. Or right, and, and and if we can, let's say, believe Marianne Connolly's story, uh, you know, implicitly, and that it was a soldier, uh, you know, if all things point to a soldier. If a soldier did it, then it's most likely a one-off. If a soldier right. is not the ripper. Right. Right. Do you have final thoughts on that, Mike? Um, I, I think I think she's one of the most interesting um, out of all the the, the victims. Um, and you know, worthy of definitely worthy of more study. Um, both looking at a past. Um, as well as the events, and I'm going to have another look through the newspapers down this end and, and see if I can find anything. Chances are that, you know, the the whole newspapers, as I have found out over the past couple of weeks, did have their own reporters down there, um, who picked up on quite a lot of unusual stories, um, in particularly in, in sort of the, the slum areas, um, you know, the lower social classes, 
um, you know, I found a few little bits of information that have not been picked up anywhere else. So, fingers crossed, we might find something new. You'll definitely have to keep us apprised uh, of that, Mike, uh, through the casebook message boards and JTR forums, uh, Howard's site. Yeah, will do, will do. I think actually, um, the Chris George is including the latest Jack the Ripper letter um, that was sent to a whole newspaper in the eight, uh, Ripperologist 89, I think he's putting it in the editorial, um, so you'll get to see that, um, and I've also submitted an article as well, um, including the, the kind of paper trail um, that, that that Ripper letter um, has left, um, so that, you know, there's a couple of fans down here, um, some of them of importance, um, but a lot of them just looking at the, you know, the local effect um, that Jack the Ripper had, and I'm sure there's, there's newspapers like that the world over. Okay, guys, um, as Howard said about five minutes ago, uh, we've reached an hour. Um, it is um, interesting that, um, you know, as, as we all know, this is the, this is 2008, 120 years um, since the Ripper murders, um, Emma Smith uh, was killed on April 2nd, which is just uh, about a week and a half away um, from the anniversary of her murder. And um, we're going to do victim shows all throughout. Um, and um, I think they're really important. Yeah, as I'm sure you all agree, um, more, much more important than um, any shows on suspects or you know um, any, anything like that, because we need to focus on on um, on these women. We can't we can't understand the crimes until we. I mean, we can't understand you know who could have done this until we understand the crimes, right? And learn as much as possible as we can about uh, victims and potential victims. Okie dokie. Um, well, I want to thank uh, everyone for being on the show today. Um, Robert McLaughlin in Edmonton, Canada, thanks for joining us. Um, this is Easter Sunday, and I appreciate everybody uh, um, taking time off of their holiday to be on the show. Howard Brown in Philadelphia. Always good to be here, buddy. And Mike Covell in Hull. It's always a pleasure. And that was uh, episode six of Rippercast. You can um, download us from our website at www.rippernet.com. Click on the podcast link at the top of the page. And um, there you can get this new episode by hitting the subscribe button. It'll download automatically to your iTunes music library and your podcast section. And you can also get um, all the uh, prior episodes um uh, still online at that same site, and we're going to be, we were off last week, but we're going to try our best to keep this a weekly show, so um, I want to again thank everyone for being on today, and we'll see you next week.